Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13. If you're visiting with us today, uh, we are journeying, journeying through the book of 1 Samuel. Spent a lot of the first part uh, looking at the life of Samuel himself. And now have uh, been spending the last few weeks studying King Saul. And we will continue on and a uh, new character will, will come onto the scene soon. Um, King David. Um, starting off as a shepherd boy, David. But 1 Samuel 13, um, there's a Bible right in front of you if you would like to use that. Um, I forgot to grab the page number, even though this week in staff meeting, John said, we need to remember to grab the pages of the Bibles in front of us and give them. So if someone turned to that, 299, thank you guys. I'll still, I'll still get a talking to, but I appreciate it. 1 Samuel 13. So there, we're, these are a lot of verses. Um, and I have a half hour to go through this whole chapter. So I just want to summarize the first seven verses uh, this morning as we've been tracking through this. And uh, as we come to this passage this morning, um, one of the reasons that Saul, one of the, the, the things that Samuel told Saul is like, this is what you need to be about. When you become king, one of your jobs is going to be defend Israel from attack, specifically the Philistines. And so it's been about two years since his reign um, if we look at the first verse in chapter 13, Saul lived for one year and then became king. We just need to start off with a clarification here, okay? Saul was not one years old and then he became king, okay? Um, it's interesting, as you begin to study this and you look at the transcripts, even the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay, um, his age is missing here. And so you have to look at other texts, you have to look at historians, and you even have to look at other parts of the Bible where we kind of put together here that Saul is probably about 40 years old. And he's two years into his reign. Um, they use that because in Acts 13, which is interesting, you think all the way to the New Testament, Acts 13, 21 says, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So we see even in Acts, it's, it's talking about how long he reigns. So they're putting it together with his son, Jonathan, okay? Uh, a, a really interesting character, which we'll learn more about in the weeks ahead, is coming onto the scene and is actually going to be with his father in battle, um, and so to be a leader in battle, you had to be about 20 years old. So Saul is not one years old, and Jonathan would not even be born if, if you're that. So this is where we're kind of coming into, and there is a conflict on the horizon. Saul has stepped out now, and he's ready to take it to the Philistines to accomplish his job. And so he kind of instigates them in the first seven verses. We won't read every verse, but basically he goes out and he says, you know what, we're going to go and attack them. And the goal is to bring them to war and Israel is going to gather together. They're going to blow a loud horn and bring all the tribes together. This is a, an amazing um, experience of unity for the people of Israel under the rule of King Saul. Remember, there's a lot of people that have questions about him. Like, can this guy really lead us? There's a lot of skeptics. And so he spurs them. And it works, okay? He spurs the Philistines to, to war. And you see in those opening passages, the opening verses, verses 1 to 7, that the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. 
they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. It worked. So you just think about the scene here with where we're at. King Saul, he declares, we're going to go fight. Let's spur them to anger. And it works. And just imagine being where he's at in this moment, because we're going to spend most of our time in the rest of the chapter. But just think about that moment, being where you are, we're going to fight, and then that scene in front of you. 30,000 chariots. I don't care who you are, how brave you are, that's intimidating, okay? The cavalry. he says there's so many soldiers that it's, it's more than the sand on the sea. And so you look at what, what's the state of Israel then in verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, that means they were anxious and nervous, which most of us would be. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. I think if we're just honest, that would probably be most of us in this room. I'd be finding anywhere to hide. Like, where do we hide? I mean, just basically, you just see this picture of they just, whoa, where do we hide? And some Hebrews even crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. The stage is set. Saul is here to accomplish what God has told him that he wants him to do. And then we have this, this is really a turning point, one of the epic turning points in the Old Testament because it affects the kingdom of Israel. This is Saul's, the beginning of the end for him, and sadly, it's only two years into his reign. Like we said, he's going to reign for 40 years. And so what I want to do is just focus this in on verse 8. I'm going to read verse 8, following with me. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, even though he did, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal I have not sought the favor of the Lord. Interesting word usage here. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. We often focus growing up when I would learn this uh, with the little flannel graph things. um, We often focus, and rightly so, on the actual act of him saying, you know what? I'm taking control. I'm going to do the sacrifice that I know only Samuel can do. Ultimately, Samuel, remember, even though the kingship has now taken the place of the prophet, Samuel's still in the scene and he's functioning as God would design. He still has to be obedient to Samuel because Samuel is still the voice of the Lord for the people of Israel. And he says, listen, I want you to go wait seven days. He did this many times to Saul. This is the second time we've seen it. And there's going to be other times when he said, go wait, and I will be there and I will come and meet you. So we see Saul struggle here. What I want to focus on this morning is that, that process of seven days, the waiting, because, yes, at the, ultimately we know what happens at the end of those seven days. He takes control and he says, I am going to sacrifice. I know it's not right. It says I force myself to do it. And on the human level, I mean, my heart kind of goes out to, to Saul. Like, we ain't going to sit here and judge him this morning and be like, man, how could you do that? I mean, think about it. 30,000 chariots, armies ready to march. Um, this, like, we gotta, we're going to fight soon. And everyone's just disappearing, hiding. At some point, I think... Like, on the human level, like, I see why he kind of was just like, yeah, let's get God's blessing. Let's, let's, let's go. We either got to get out of here or we got to, like, bring the people together and fight. 
So Saul struggled with waiting. God told Saul to wait. He knew. He had this seven-day battle of the soul. Seven days where he was just battling. Do I trust God? Is Samuel really going to come? And is he going to do what he said he was going to do? And at the end of the day, Saul waited, but he didn't wait long enough. And like I said, it's the beginning of the, the sad story, really. Saul, we hate waiting. How many of you just love waiting? Raise your hand. Okay, because then you'll be a, a liar, okay? <laughs> we hate waiting, okay? In our culture, all right, I mean, just think about Amazon Prime for a second, okay? With a click of a button, it could be here in two days. There's no waiting. You just click. But here's the weird thing. Isn't it funny that, like, so I was just reading, the, uh, saw this week that um, Sears is, like, on the last, like, their CEO came out and said, basically, we're not going to be around much longer. It was kind of like, we're not going to survive this. Um, and it's just interesting that, like, we, we would rather click a button and wait longer, two days, than actually go through the process of all the waiting that takes place to go to Sears. Because think about it. If you're going to go to the store, like in my family, I first of all have to wait for my wife to get ready, okay? And that can take a while. Um, then I have to wait for, like, we have to put the kids in the car, which is just, you know, that's 15 minutes in and of itself, chase them around the house. And then on your way to Sears, you have these things called traffic lights that you have to wait at. Then you, if, if you're like me, you only like to park in the first three spots. So you have to wait for a spot to open. So you just drive around. Then you buy whatever you wanted. And you could have this in two hours, but it's still, you've had to wait. You get what you wanted. And then you have to wait in line, okay? And so we think about just like we hate waiting. We hate it. And so I think a lot of times our waiting um, permeates down to the soul level, to our spiritual walk. Like on an external level, like we laugh about it and we joke, but there's some interesting things about waiting. There's two reasons of many that I think we as Americans hate waiting. Number one, we're enslaved to consumer entitlement, okay? It's our time, our money. Um, and so if like anyone takes away from that a little bit, we feel like we're taken advantage of. We get very defensive, okay? Example, just prime example of this, um, you're walking through Walmart and you buy your thing and you look at the cash registers and there's only one light on, Right? What's that instinct that you feel in that moment? Like, oh my word, how can they do this? This is ridiculous. They make billions of dollars a year and they have one cash register and there's seven people in line, right? We all feel that, okay? Um, and there's that entitlement, that we're enslaved to consumer entitlement. It creeps out of us all the time, okay? It just flows out of us. Um, we also have become enslaved to consumer efficiency, okay? Um, this is why, like, we might say we're not, but businesses know this. This is why we have efficient cars, efficient windows, Everything is efficient, efficient, efficient. Um, and businesses cater to this. Uh, and, and so it, it just, it, it's in all things, okay? And I want to just give a personal example because it really, I had a face-to-face. God convicted me of this uh, two weeks ago. We use the new, um, like, you, it might not be new for some of you. Some of you are like, you're so behind. But like, the, um, you pull up at Walmart and you put your groceries in and you just pick it up and they put it in your trunk. Amazing. Especially with two young kids, like, it is, it, it's been life-changing. We love it. We lay there on Saturday nights. We have calendar meeting and we have groceries. Okay, and we just lay there and we put in our order, just put in the time, um, and we pick it up, okay? Um, amazing tool for our lives. Back uh, three Sundays ago, we, uh, we set it for one o'clock after church, and they, they sent us an email saying, hey, sorry, our system's down, you're gonna get bumped to five o'clock. So we're like, oh, okay, whatever. <sighs> you know, how inconvenient. We have to eat three hours for our groceries, okay? So we pull up, I, I have to go down later, four o'clock. Um, and I pull up to the parking spot, and the pers- they're running around like crazy, and the person comes out, and, hey, we'll be back in a couple minutes. All right, okay. Well, I sit there, and I sit there, and I sit there, all the while, mm, mm, like, 
Like, what is going on? I get out of my car. I walk all the way around through the door to the back right corner where I know they are, but they're like in a cave. You can't find them anywhere, okay? I, I knew what was happening. They were picking my groceries. I was just going to go, hey, how long? You know, you didn't tell me anything. What's going on? I go back to my car because they're still not there. And about 10 minutes later, a young kid comes out all flustered, and he has my groceries. And, um, you know, I, I'm just going to be like the Christian angry, or I'm just going to be matter of fact, not rude, but just like, mm-hmm, yeah, thanks. Put them in the trunk. Um, and he comes to my window, and he looks at me, and I can just tell something's wrong. I'm like, oh, no, here we go. And he looks at me, and, and his face is, is really worn, and he's like, I go, how's it going, man? People are mean. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I've been on the phone all day. I'm the only one here. I just came on the shift. The system's down. And he goes, I just had two people read me out and curse me out because my groceries aren't going to be here on time. And he starts to cry, okay? I'm instantly, I start to cry, okay? So here we are, like, <laughs> someone, someone just cues Celine Dion, and it would have been like this epic moment, okay? But we're sitting there, and in that moment, okay, I felt so, so, so convicted because my entitlement and my selfishness, like, was ready to respond and treat this kid like, oh, just terrible, and it broke me in that moment. And I, I was like, I looked pathetic after them. Oh, man, you're doing an awesome job. I, I haven't been waiting that long. And uh, <laughs> I, I, helped, I helped him. I got out of the car and helped him, like, load my groceries and gave him a high five. And then on my way home, I felt so bad that I called the manager of Walmart. And I was like, I won't give the kids name, but I'm like, I just want to let you know he's doing an awesome job. I know the system's been down. I know it's been a really rough day. But I, want, I think you should go back and encourage him because he's flying solo. And he's doing a lights-out job. She's like, all right, thank you. I will. That was purely from selfish guilt motive. It wasn't because I cared, okay? But we hate, we hate, hate, hate to wait. And it, it, I think if we really stop and be like, man, it's so true, I think we would start to recognize that, that that waiting process really does affect our spiritual walk. Saul experienced a seven-day battle of the soul, same battle many of us face. And so I wanted to just walk through, um, Saul didn't wait well, okay? He didn't wait well. So what does it look like to wait well in the context of this story? What are some things that Saul could have done that we take away from the passage? And then we're going to look at a positive example of what this looks like. So I just want to put this first slide up. We, we wait, okay? Um, on the next slide, we, we spend a lot of time. God has us here sometimes. He says, Brian, I want you to wait. I just want you to be still. God calls all of us. It looks different for all of us. But, but God calls us to wait. It might be a... Um, a marital situation, a relationship situation, where we're just like, you know what, like things are, are not getting better, and I wish they would improve, and God says, wait, I'm working. It might be the future plans. For those of us who love to know what the future holds, waiting is so challenging, isn't it? We want to know what's coming next. We want to know, like, if you're in a stage of life of, of education or whatever, like, what does my future job look like? What is my future spouse? Like, what does that look like? <laughs> Chronic pain. I've never experienced this, but doing this role and interacting with a lot of you who struggle with chronic pain, waiting is tough. It is tough. Spiritual state of others. A lot of it for, I know there's a lot of parents in here who carry a heavy, a heavy heart sometimes because our kids aren't where we would love them to be spiritually. And God says, wait. They have their own spiritual journey and we want to sit there and go, ah, wait. So we wait in pain, we wait for the unknown, we wait in fear. But waiting looks different for all of us, but there's two things that I think happen to all of us that are the same. So there's two directions that we go when waiting happens, um, kind of two extremes that we go to when we're called and God calls us to wait. So the first one is this. Number one is, um, God's got this, I'll do nothing. 
This is one of our responses that happens. When God calls us to wait, we just say, all right, God's got this. I'll do nothing. That's extreme number one. Extreme number two, okay, is I got this. God's doing nothing. I got this. God's doing nothing. Both of these are dangerous. You see, the the country of Israel, the people of Israel, had become very, very entitled in their relationship with God. It was no longer a relationship thing going. It was what can we get out of God? Remember, we've talked about this all through this book. Quick, go get the Ark of the Covenant before battle. We're not gonna go and worship at all, but we need it when we're going into battle because God will do his thing. God's like that magical thing up there in the sky that like he's gonna work ahead of us. And so Saul in this moment sits by idly in his consumer faith and just waits. Now he's called to wait, but the people are disappearing. What a moment for leadership to call the people together and say, guys, guys, listen, God has been faithful. He is faithful now and he will be faithful, nothing. He just sits by and he's like, you know what? God's got this, I'll do nothing. (laughs) But that only lasts for so long because you see the opposite begins to take place. Saul showed us both of this. He showed us, I got this, God's doing nothing. All of a sudden, as he's seeing everybody flee, you start to, doubt starts to creep in, right? Like, man, maybe God doesn't really care about my situation. Maybe he really, maybe he's overlooking me and my family, my needs, my struggles. And we begin to say, you know what? I got this. I'll take control. I'll do this. And there's, there's, I think a lot of us, can, can anybody identify with one of those? Just raise your hand and be like, yeah, that's what I do. Like when God calls me to wait, like for me, it's control. No doubt. I got this. I'll do it. I got the answer. Um, and then I trip over myself and go back to God and he humbles me. But that's where I go. And so here's two results, okay? Here's two results that happen when we do this. For the first one, we have stationary faith, all right? Faith, it just stops. You ever seen someone that comes to Christ, passionate about Jesus, following the Lord with their life, and then you come back 30 years later, and it's like nothing's ever changed? They're the same person, same struggles, nothing. You're like, hey, I thought, I thought you had, like, Jesus living in you now, and he was changing your life, and you're like a new creature and a new creation, and nothing's changed? I often think that those people are not waiting well on certain areas of their life. They've become stationary in their faith, and they just stop. The whole New Testament calls us to something greater, something that's like a new purpose, something that moves us forward from who we were to who we will become, and we have stationary faith. The other result that happens is worry leads to control. When we take control, um, it's usually because we have a fear or a worry of something, where we're like, you know what? God's not doing this, and and it it begins to consume us. It almost like paralyzes us, the fear of not having control. Think about Saul as he's walking through this, okay, the fear that is building. People are leaving in droves, and he's sitting there going, that's a lot of chariots, and where's where's my men? Where are they? It it totally makes sense, not dismissing the fear, but is there a, a better and healthier way to wait? So none of us want to be here, like, in this spot, and I hope you can identify. I want to just give us a visual of, like, most of us go to one of those two extremes in our lives. So then what's the opposite? Like, what does it look like to wait well? And I want us to turn to Psalm 27 together. Turn to Psalm 27. Just an amazing passage. There's been so many worship songs written out of these verses. Psalm 27. 
going to move forward a little bit in the scriptures, Psalm 27. And I want us to just, this morning, to rethink our relationship with waiting, okay? So I just have a few questions for us. Is it possible that waiting is a good thing? Actually a gift from the Lord to build our faith. So let me throw that question out there. Is, is waiting a good thing? Does our waiting cause us to experience a dependence on God that we wouldn't otherwise have? Is waiting a tool that God uses, uses to make us more like himself? I think if we were being all spiritual together and we were giving each other the Sunday school answers, we'd be like, yeah, definitely. Waiting's a good thing. <laughs> but when life actually happens, we don't love waiting and what that means for us. And so I just want to explain, okay, we're going to read Psalm 27, okay? And I just want to explain what's happening in David's life right now because it is amazing. So, again, Saul reigns for 40 years. David is anointed about 15 to 20 years before that. Think about that for a minute. He knows the promise that he will become king. He is anointed king. And think about that moment. Okay, at first it's like fear, and then it's like, all right, anticipation. Like, what does this actually look like? 15 to 20 years of waiting. Waiting and waiting. And it wasn't like he was in like a nice like king preparatory school where they're like training him to like, now this is how, what fork you eat with, okay? And this is like, this is how you talk when you're giving public speeches. He's running for his life for a lot of those years because Saul knows that he's the next king. His waiting is not this easy track of life. And you can see that as he writes this psalm, this is during that time when he's running, 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 running. And waiting, waiting, waiting on God, he writes this amazing psalm. And I just want to read this, and then we're going to take three things away from it on how do we wait well. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers evil assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army camp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make a melody to the Lord. Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. There's three things here that I want to just take away from this. I'm like, so how do we wait? So if God calls us to wait, if we admit that waiting might be a good thing, okay, that God's using in our lives, how do we wait well? Number one, in this passage, we see that it's okay to acknowledge the pain of waiting. Man, I, Psalms is just so open and honest with God, it's raw. 
Like, it's the beauty of Psalms is, like, if you're just feeling down, if you're at a spot that's low, Psalms will, like, you can just identify with how it's written because the emotion that is involved in the writing of Psalms. And you just see here, like, David doesn't, David doesn't say, like, hey, God, um, I got something I want to, like, share with you. Um, like, can we have a talk? Like, he just goes right at it. He's like, listen, we're going to talk here, okay? You ready to have a discussion? Like, right now, this is hard. This is hard. And he just, he uses it like, my, my enemies camp against me. I sit with people that are false. People are lying about me. Evildoers assail me. He just, like, every verse is just a crying out to God. He's not ignoring that he's waiting. He's not ignoring the hard things. And we often do that. We kind of just be like, ah. Like, we, we try to hide it from other people. We try to, like, almost put it out of our mind. Well, it's just not there. Like, when you put things out of your mind, does it get better, really? No. It doesn't get better. But, like, somehow we just do that. And I love, like, he's just, like, just be honest with God. God loves, like, cast your cares on me because I care for you. Like, what an amazing promise that God gives. The next thing we see that waiting well does is it acknowledges the pain. It, it has a dialogue with God. It talks to God. But it actively pursues God. Look at verse 4. One thing I ask um, from the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Look at all the action words there, okay? I will seek after, I will dwell, I will gaze upon, and I will inquire, okay? That is the beauty of waiting right there, is it gives us an amazing opportunity to wait on God, but then to pursue God. So here's, here's what I think is that waiting for God activates our worship. Like it's an activation point for us. It should be. We're like, when we're in that moment of like God tells us to wait for something, that should instantly be like, man, I have an opportunity to worship God now. Probably not our first instinct if we're honest. What if our uncomfortable state, God is saying, come find comfort from me. What if in our weaknesses, God's saying, hey, I'll give you strength. Come to me. I think God sometimes has to use waiting to get our attention. And uh, I've just, it's interesting, many people have shared with me that like when God has slowed them down at certain points in their life, whether it's a physical thing or something where they just had no control and they were stuck in a hospital bed or they couldn't do something that they normally do, it's interesting like how many times that was when God was the most real to them. I think that's something we should learn from. It's like, oh, that's really interesting. When you were at your lowest, when you were, couldn't do anything else, when you were still, that's when you had the, the most amazing experience pursuing God. See, waiting is active. Waiting is not idle. This is what we got to remember. When you hear the word wait, we instantly think of waiting, right? Just being there. It's active. We see here that David pursued God in his waiting. Last we see that, and this, and this is the toughest, waiting accepts God's plan. This is where we as believers have a glorious hope, an amazing thing that can happen to us. Look at verse 14, how he ends the whole chapter. What word does he use twice in that last verse? Wait. There's the two, but I'm glad you guys picked the right one, okay? Wait, okay? But he also says in verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. At the end of this, David declares to the Lord, and you see it throughout, that like, I'm still okay with your plan. You see it all throughout his Psalms. As he's like, I still am willing to wait for you because I know you have me here. 
but I don't like it, but I'm here and I'm willing and I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to serve you. This is the toughest thing for us as believers on, on this side of eternity is are we willing to wait long enough to say, you know what, God might have us wait our whole lives for something. Like when you get to that point and you can be submissive to God, that's when you have like arrived, okay? Um, and some of us may do it sometimes and not others. Like that is something amazing to strive for, to be like, you know what, if I never find the answer to the questions that I have, if I never understand the way that like I was raised and the bitterness that I have towards that, um, if we can get to the point, be like, but you know what, God, like I may never understand why this happened in my life, why my spouse did that, why this happened, why my kids were the way they are, why I am the way I am. God, I want, I want answers. I want you to show me why this is. And he says, like, are you willing to get to the point where you're like, no, God's enough. He's enough to answer all your questions, to conquer all your fears, to be your strength. David had an eternal perspective in waiting while Saul had a temporal perspective. It's the difference of this and this, Okay. It's the difference of this and this. Where are David's eyes? I look to the Lord. His eyes instantly went up when things got tough. What did Saul do? Looked out. And when we look out and don't look up, I mean, it's okay to look out, but we got to look up first, okay? When we do that reverse order, we're in trouble because this is overwhelming, okay? Don't believe me? Turn on the 11 o'clock news, okay? Just do it for one night. I don't understand why people watch the 11 o'clock news. I got to get ready for bed. Let me just go watch like the seven worst things that happened in my area today. And that'll just, like, get me ready to sleep, you know? Like, huh. You know, like, yeah, this is good, okay? But this is the difference. We got to look up, not out. I want to just close with sharing, like, one of the um, principles that God's been teaching me. It's a New Testament principle. Uh, It's a theological point that goes way back. But one of my favorite authors, Paul David Tripp, uses this phrase a lot. And it's called, we live between the already and the not yet. We live between the already and the not yet. This is a powerful phrase to live by. If we're going to wait well, like, this is what we have to understand. We as believers, as soon as you become a child of God, you're in the posture of waiting until the day you take your last breath. We live between the already, what Christ has done for us on the cross, the promises that we have, the the abilities and gifts that we have through Christ, but we haven't truly arrived because the day, like, the day before you get saved and the day after you get saved, they really don't look much different. You realize that? Like, we kind of put false things. If I just, like, give my life to Christ, tomorrow's going to be, man, I am going to be a new person. Yes, you are. But there's a lot of time in between when you become a child of God and when you're glorified with him in heaven and every tear is wiped away. Every struggle is gone. Every weakness is now, like, new because Christ has just taken that all away. We live between the already and the not yet. So, I want to just read these verses, Titus 2, 11 to 13, and they're up on the screen. Follow with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I underline those two words on purpose, training and waiting. I think our waiting is a training ground for us while we live this life. Like, let's use our waiting to say, God, I, I don't know why you're doing this, but I realize that you're training me for something to become more like you. And that's ultimately what he's doing. We are waiting for our blessed hope. We live between the already and the not yet. This is so important to understand because it'll help us wait well. We're gonna spend a lot of time, you ready for the encouraging part? We're gonna spend a lot of our life waiting. 
okay? Sorry, it's just the news, okay? If I wanted to tickle your ears, I'd be like, don't worry, tomorrow all your problems are going to go away, okay? It's not the way it works in this life. If you've lived any amount of time, you realize, okay, we wait, okay? And it's, sometimes it's, it's way harder than standing in seven-person seven line at Walmart, okay? These are real-life things that we have to wait about. So just a closing question. What are, what are we going to do with our waiting, okay? And I think this is such an important Waiting well will drive us to worship, not worry. So as you sit here today, identify areas that God has you waiting. What are you going to do with your waiting? In the everyday, we wait for God to answer certain prayers we have. We wait for answers, um, we wait for question, answers to questions that we can't seem to answer. We wait for God to remove certain burdens that we carry. We wait for God to change something about us that we just can't stand or wish was, was different. We wait for those close to us to change for the better, but it doesn't happen always. We often wait for pain of past hurts to go away, but they never do. So if you just look at the second half of that passage, and you look at Saul in verses 13 to 23, there's some just, like, not waiting well has consequences. I mean, he waited and waited and waited, and at the last moment, he decided to take control. He didn't have to wait. It says, it says Samuel came right up after he gave the sacrifice. But look at the repercussions. They're all detailed in verses 13 to 23, and they're devastating. First of all, there's the personal for Saul. Samuel says, you are a fool. How dare you do this? I, I had a hope, I had a promise for you, and you, it's done. As predicted, it's done. God is going to go anoint someone else, and the line of your family is done. Remember, Jonathan's living. Like Saul as a father goes, that's the next king. And in this moment, because of this, done. That's in, that verse, in those verses. We also see that um, it led to major problems for Israel. At the end of the, in the end of the passage, look at this. Now, verse 19, or verse 17. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward um, Ophrah, not Oprah, to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Haran, and another company turned toward the border that looks down the valley of uh, Zeboam toward the wilderness. So here's what Saul does. He goes, we're going to break up in three companies, and we're going to run for our lives. And hopefully, like one of us escapes. They just run. They go. They run in fear. They're paralyzed by fear. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines now to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks. And a third of the shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, okay, here's the repercussions. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the land of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. God allowed them to escape, but think about that. All those men, I take control, they didn't even have weapons for the battle because they couldn't sharpen their own things because they had to go to the Philistines and say, hey guys, um, we gotta eat. Can you sharpen our tools? And they're like, yeah, pay up, all right, pay up. So we see the repercussions of not waiting well. And the same is true for us in our lives as Christians. So that closing question, what areas of your life does God have you waiting? Okay, what areas of your life? Like, does God have you here right now? I guarantee he does in some way, shape, or form. But I want you to think about this that, that week. Because, and then I want you to ask the second question, am I really waiting well? Like, am I doing this the right way? There's many times in my life, just like I had that experience with, with that kid at Walmart, where I was like just broken in a moment. 
he's crying, I'm crying. Like, I think there's a lot of times that we just need to be broken about how we're waiting before God. We just need to say, God, I'm wrong here. I trust you. I'm thankful for you. And then I just want to end with one verse just to encourage you, okay? This is an amazing, amazing verse. It goes all the way back to Isaiah, okay? Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I mean, that is a timeless truth. If you're, if you're in that position, like I said, be honest. Like, we shouldn't just say, ah, oh, man, my waiting, I'm weak for having a bad, no. Waiting is hard. But God gives us this promise that says, listen, for those of you who are waiting, I'm here. You're not waiting alone. And the way that your waiting is going to get better is by drawing closer to me. And here's what I'm going to do for you, okay? As you're waiting and the pain is hard and life is hard, I, I alone will renew your strength. You will mount up with wings like eagles. That beautiful picture of like, when we're waiting, it doesn't feel like we're flying over a beautiful canyon like an eagle, does it? But he said, that's what it's going to be like. And then, they shall run and not be weary. It's active. They shall walk and not faint. Hold on to that promise. If you're in that area tonight where God has you waiting in an area, it's tough. But God's there. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our waiting. I know I can't always say that. And I know that it's, it's, it's a challenge to even identify sometimes certain areas where you have us waiting, God. But I pray that we would wait well that we would be active in our waiting, God, pursuing you for who you are, pursuing your promises, pursuing your character, pursuing worship with you as we wait, God. I thank you for the examples, both good and bad in Scripture, that we can identify with, God, with Saul and David, and just the, the differences there and how they pursued you in their waiting. God, thank you for your word. May it powerfully be lived out in our lives this week. In your name, amen.